Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome, lovers of product. Today, I am here with Lars, the co-founder and CEO at Dream Data. Lars, why don't you kick off this podcast by giving us a little overview of your background? Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. I'll do that. So my name is Lars. I'm uh, the co-founder and CEO of a company called Dream Data. And I come from a background in product management, uh, most recently at a company called Trustpilot. That's a review product in the um, like e-commerce space. Before that, I worked at various other software companies, and at the very beginning of my career, started out in UX in consulting, in what you back then would call a web agency. So, tell me how uh, working in user experience, you know, gave you that background for product. Like, how did having that experience help you be a leader of product at Trustpilot and, and now a CEO? Yeah, I think that back then, at least, it was and. I, it still is a typical path into product management that you can come to that UX angle. I would say our flavor of UX was we were in an agency setting and we basically were the people, like we had, of course, engineers working on the product. We had salespeople in, like we were an agency, so you had salespeople engaging with the customer, but nobody was really taking that, I would say, like product management perspective of actually like thinking about the whole product. So we thought about the user experience, but we were also the people who would think about the whole product and think about sort of would it actually work in the context of our customer. So I think it's not unusual that you take that path. Like if you're the design flavor of UX, it's less normal. But if you are on the sort of business or concept side of, of UX, I think it makes sense that you end up in something like product management. So now running product at Trustpilot, take me through that. Take me through yeah. how you got into product at Trustpilot and what it was like yeah, building yeah. product there. Yeah. So I did come from a product management job at that point. So I had done sort of a bit of product management before that, but maybe without, I would say, not having a very good definition myself of what product management actually was. But for me, Trustpilot was the first place where I got to work with a like a major product and I feel what it meant to be like responsible for a product. So yeah, coming into Trustpilot, we I was, I would say a lot of things that I think are right that would come out of like ideas about how to lean products or talk a lot about value and uh, how important it was to do small things that created value, think about value. Like, but I think what was maybe missing was a healthy understanding of like what how how do you actually measure value? How do you know that you, as the product manager, is contributing value? And I think another thing was that when I joined Trustpilot, that was around Series B, it was a fairly small team. So there wasn't a lot of product management there when I started. But as we grew the team there, of course, you end up having to deal with like, how do you, how do, you do product management across multiple teams? How do you manage something which, from a customer perspective, is just one product? How do you manage that? Like, how do you get a bunch of people together who call themselves product managers and get them to manage it in a meaningful way together so that it sort of takes a, a common direction? It all makes sense together, but like for each of these people, it also has to make sense. So I think there was a lot of like 
that journey that happens in a product organization that grows. That was my experience in with that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about what else you learned there. So there was lots of painful learnings. Like when we when when I started, I think the great thing about Trustpy was there was a very very awesome engineering team in place when I started. So it meant that there was a lot of things going on in the engineering side that were like taking the company in a very sort of modern direction of this is like eight, nine years ago. So it was maybe not common to release like all the time, like, but already at that state, that was like a conscious decision by the engineering management that they wanted to be able to release very often to microservices, like carve up the product into small parts. So there was an engineering team that was, wanting to do a lot of the things that you need to do to do modern product management. So they were like going through this process of slicing up the product, making it actually like manageable for a product to get some part of the product work. But, but I think that that was maybe the first painful experience was like going through months, if not like almost a year of like restructuring the technical side of the product, just trying to find small wins that we could implement while sort of preparing this product for actually you know, scaling the product team really, because to scale the product, we need to scale the product team, but like the technical infrastructure wasn't there yet. So there was a lot of sort of re-architecting of the product first. Then once that was in place, then came all the discussions about like, how do you actually divide up the product? How do you create meaningful units of product teams that can, like, what is a meaningful unit? What <laughs> What is a meaningful responsibility? So there was a lot of learning. I think one of the like, pivotal things that we did was we worked with uh, Silicon Valley Product Group and got their help in sort of how do you do modern product management? How like, I, I think they were very key in our approach to this. What, what was so, a meaningful unit uh, there for you? <laughs> what, did it, what did it look like? I think what we ended up, I think it, it varies like across. It wasn't, it, this isn't true at all stages. But where we ended was like it's a unit of product where you can have sort of ideally the full stack of the product. So you are able to deliver product to like solving a specific use case or a specific scenario or for a specific persona. So you can work with you know a slice of the product that is like all the way from concept down to the data layer. You can release it with very little friction from other teams. And you know how to measure business value inside of that unit, right? So I think that was key thing. Like you need to find slices of product that in itself can create business value so that you can measure that. And I, I would say at Trustpilot, we never, we never got to Nirvana, but <laughs> my Nirvana is a place where, where every team has a clear, like this is back to the discussion about value. It's like where every team can see the business impact of the product. So like ideally it's like it's revenue, it's retention. It's maybe it's like in some cases it can be cost savings, but like going back to the like fundamental business objectives of the company, how is that team contributing to that? And how do they measure that? That's the perfect world in my view. So nice. that's you mentioned one other thing I wanted to dig into before yeah. we move on to some other stuff. And that was this, you know, this re-architecture, right? Because there's always a challenge as a company in general. Like when you're rebuilding or re-architecting a product to get to scale, 
then it's often taking away a ton of capabilities to innovate, right? Yeah. So you're often perceived as like, you're not innovating, even though you really are innovating a ton on the back end for the things that matter to customers, scalability, you know, performance, all that kind of stuff. And you know, that's always a struggle to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. Was it a hard decision to make that or was it, it a was, choice like it was, we had to do it? It was insanely painful. And I think it's something like at all costs, like if in any way you can avoid that stage, if you can avoid building up like a huge volume of tech debt that you need to sort out, that's great. And I think like after that experience, we sort of did a handshake between me and, and the head of engineering that this would never happen again, that we'd never get to a point where we would have to dedicate maybe 80% of resources to re-architecting and just killing tech debt. And I think the main thing that you do to avoid that is basically like having an agreement that you continuously pay off your tech debt. So you don't have this huge buildup that all of a sudden means you have to stop. Like we had things got to very bad. Like what caused us to sort of say, hey, we need to do something about this was we had the experience. We were like dividing things up between back end and front end. And we were building like a feature, like the whole feature was built. And now we just needed to sort of put that thing into the user interface that would actually activate the feature. And that went through, I think like, um, a full month of attempts to release this thing just because of the sort of messiness of our code base, right? So at that point, we said, okay, this, this, is, not, this is not sustainable. We're going to be around for a long time, so we need to sort this out. And then we went through this whole process of carving up the product so that it never happened again, right? And, and now you've gone on and co-founded Dream Data. So talk to me about making the leap to starting a company. Yeah, I, I think like many, many founders, you start from something you experience, like you, you have an experience, uh, like our experience was a trust pilot and you face a problem and you look for solutions and you realize that there aren't really any great solutions for this problem. And then, you know, in your context, maybe you like, if it's a tech problem or a product problem, you start solving it. Maybe you solve it in that context, you realize, okay, hey, this was very painful other people have this problem. Maybe this is a product. That's what happened to us. So we were, Trustpilot was like a two-sided marketplace. You had people writing reviews and you had companies, you know, buying the attention of reviewers essentially and buying other benefits of interacting with reviewers and reviews. And it meant that we had a huge inflow of business from this consumer-facing part of the product. Like if you're a trip advisor, you have the same, right? Lots of people are seeing TripAdvisor because they are you know, looking at hotels, restaurants, et cetera. And then they end up interacting with TripAdvisor. They, that causes companies to interact with TripAdvisor. And then you know, those companies then buy products from TripAdvisor. This was exactly the same model. So we had this huge component of our business that was originating from a consumer-facing, say, marketplace. And then we had, of course, a marketing team that was spending a serious amount of money on traditional marketing efforts, like B2B marketing efforts. And we had a very active sales team that was doing outbound sales. But when we sort of sat together in, in the leadership team and we were trying to figure out like, okay, so you know, this month we made X million dollars in new business. Where on earth did that actually originate? There was just no consensus around it. And when people added up their contribution, it inevitably ended up at like two to three times the actual amount of money we made that month. Which is of course, yeah, yeah, that always true. happens, right? <laughs> it, it happens a lot. And I think for us, it was not so much a question about like finding the truth, but at least saying, hey, if we're going to run this business in a rational way, 
we need to understand what works and what doesn't work and what are the ratios, like how much of this should we do? And like, if we do more demand gen, like B2B demand gen, what's the result? Like, how should we then act in sales? What about like we have, you know, a steady increase in people coming in from this marketplace? How does that affect the other things? But there was, because there was no consensus about how things actually worked, it was very hard to talk about. And that is like, essentially like our take on that was, it's like, it's a data problem. So the data was actually there, but it's like a data integration problem. And then on top of it, I'd say the most common way of describing it is like attribution. Like you want to know sort of your revenue, where does it originate? So that's what we built there. And then I think we felt that we were, when we did it at Trustpilot, we had so much data and it was quite standardized. We were using segment.com for tracking. We had Salesforce as a CRM system. We had uh, HubSpot as our marketing automation platform. It was like super standardized. We were buying ads from Google. It was like, this isn't special. It's very, like, especially in B2B SaaS, it's like 90% of people look like this. Like, of course, you know, sometimes they use a different CRM system. Sometimes they use a different marketing automation platform. But it's like the number of combination isn't that big. And it was weird that it was such a challenge to solve this because the data was there. So why wasn't anybody just building like an easy sort of integrating this data, giving us the result? Why, why did we have to go through the pain of building data like ETL, data pipelines, modeling the data, and then we could do the attribution analysis, which was what we wanted to do. So that's how that product idea came about. And then basically the step is like, you know what it looks like. is like you go out, you test your idea, you see like, was it just us or are there other people like, is it actually true that there are other people who have this problem and are willing to pay for it and gradually get sucked into it? And then all of a sudden you're a company. Yeah. So talk to me about you, like the personal journey for yourself from, you know, running product into being a CEO, like what surprised you? What did you expect? And, uh, you know, where were your biggest personal challenges? I think because at, at Trustpilot, when we made this transition to being very value oriented and a very revenue oriented, I was actually in a leadership position. So I was never forced to do it. So when I started this company, I of course like when I was a consultant, I did a bit of selling, but I'd actually I'd never sold a software product. I'd never been out there sort of pitching a product to customers. And I think that was a big challenge for me. We were pushing our product managers at Trustpilot to do it and say, hey, if you want funding for your project here that you think is so great, go out and sell it. Show us that you can actually bring in some money with this product before we start like investing heavily in it. And you know, we want some customers on it before we fully build it. And that was a big challenge for me, just like selling the product. And then I think the next thing is when you're the CEO, you're typically put in charge of fundraising, right? So you are the guy who's going out trying to get money for your company to you know invest in product, invest and go to market, et cetera. And that whole sort of, the whole game of, of venture capital was just, that was new to me. I'd never done it before. I, was, I wasn't close to the process in Trustpilot. So that was, a, there is a lot of learning in, in that for me. So what advice would you have to other heads of product thinking about leaving great companies to start something? What would you tell them? I think like, there are, of course, like practical stuff you need to think about, but I think most people can work it out. Like you need to think about money, et cetera, like your personal life. But once that, like if you're okay with that, then I think I would definitely advise people to try it. 
I don't see how you can become anything but like either a successful founder or a very, very good product manager if you do this, right? Even if you say you start a company and you fail, like at whatever stage you fail, there is an insane amount of learning in this that is like extremely relevant for product management. So some of the best people I hired for product, they had done startups at various levels of success. So I think it's, I would definitely do it, but of course, like accept the risk of failure, but know that like what you learn from that, I think is you probably can't get those learnings any other way because yeah, I don't know. That's how I think about it. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that. You're you're definitely going to learn things no matter where you struggle or where you succeed. The, the, yeah. You know, you wouldn't learn if you weren't exposed to things like sales and fundraising. Now, dream data, data, obviously, is very important, right? It's in, it's in your name. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about, you know, the importance of having a data-oriented mindset at your company. Talk to me about the importance of data in general for companies. And then, you know, obviously, you're dealing with a ton of data at your company. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think we, you know, there are many sort of truisms around this, but we definitely subscribe to things like, hey, you know, don't bring me opinions, bring data. And, and we very much, like, that's how we ran product at Trustpilot. That's how we try to run our business. Of course, when you're early stage, like a Trustpilot, if we wanted to do any change to the running part of the product, especially the consumer facing part, we would have like insane amounts of data. And you could do like true A-B tests and like experiments and you would get very, very solid answers. When you're a small startup, like we are, we have hundreds of leads, whereas a company like Trustpilot had maybe tens of thousands of leads in a month, right? So of course, it becomes different the way that they, the level to which you can be data-driven, but you can definitely commit yourself to using the data you have, working with it, taking it seriously, never making decisions without looking at the data you have. But like sometimes you, we will be looking at something that is like, oh, 12 converted into two. Of course, you know that, you know, that might just be that month or that week, but you still have to look at it. Then you might have to apply a bit more qualities of analysis to what happened. Like, what was that deal that didn't convert? Was there a reason for it? Like, so I think that for me, it's there's no way around being data driven. And because, like, the product we built and sell is very much it's on the same premise, right? It's like this is our product targets marketers primarily and helps them to be data-driven in their approach to the market. And our take there is the same, right? You, you want to take all the data you have, you want to put it somewhere, you want to apply analysis to it, and you want, if you can be experimental and sort of do true A-B tests, of course you should do that. But if you can't do that, then at least sort of look, like count what you have, look at what you have and make decisions based on that. And even if it might be that, you don't have enough to do like true statistical analysis, or if you can't build like beautiful machine learning models, you can still work with data. So let's go back to, to dream data a little bit in revenue attribution. Talk to me yeah. a little bit about the challenges of revenue attribution, because that's a big challenge for product managers, especially if they have either P&L responsibility or for some yeah. online responsibility, or just want to see their products succeed. You know, yeah, how, yeah, how yeah. do you help people with with revenue so attribution. We, we, at Dream Data, we don't do anything specific for product, which is maybe weird because like at Trustpilot, we definitely saw the same challenge because like if you're in a beautiful world, your team has a part of the product and it's directly tied to sales, right? 
you built this new beautiful feature and it has a price. But at Trustpilot, that wasn't the case. Like we had six teams and they all had different parts of the product that was sold at one price. So how would they know if their part of the product was actually valuable? So we did pretty much the same thing that we do in Dream Data around attribution is basically we would have all the tracking data for the usage of the product. So we'd know for each account, what are they actually doing in the product? And then on the other side, we had the business data of those accounts. So like, what was the ACV of that account? Had they renewed? Were they like a customer for several years, et cetera? And with that, we would build dashboards to help our product managers understand what was the value of their part of the product. So it's like a simplistic way of doing attribution, but I think if you're in that situation in a your product, that's a reasonable way of doing it. There are many cases where you don't need to do that. Like if you're a large B2C company and you're building the shopping cart, like it's probably pretty easy to see the impact of the change that you do to the user interface or if you introduce a, a new algorithm for proposing products, like add-on products, you'll be able to see the impact if you're a large company. You can see it very fast. I think, it, again, it varies. Like if you have... B2B often is like lower volumes of data, so then you probably need to work with less and be less sophisticated. Now, talk to me specifically about the marketing side of the house and attribution for marketing people. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah. So you can say in many ways, all marketers they like that are doing digital marketing, they work with attribution all the time. Like if you're looking at Google Analytics, you're looking at maybe your spend got your traffic coming in and you're looking at conversions. There's some level of attribution there, like a funnel. I would say any funnel is sort of an implied idea of attribution. So marketers in general work with that, but where they are struggling is, this is like, we're we're B2B specific, right? In B2B, the big struggle is actually like you connect what I just described there. So like behaviors on a website or responding to a campaign, connecting that with the actual business results, like generated pipeline, close one pipeline, renewals, et cetera. That's very hard because those systems are just like, they create separate data silos and they don't, like, if you're a great company, of course, you have built a solution for this. You build like a super nice data warehouse. You have the pipeline, built all this stuff, right? But in reality, most companies, they stop there. It's like too complicated. They never get to build it. And then marketers are sort of lost. They look at revenue over here and sales, they celebrate revenue and marketers are building stuff over here and they are they disconnect and they can't see what, like one thing is like, I think maybe marketers feel underappreciated. That's not good. But I would say also they are flying a bit in the dark. Like they are lacking instruments to tell them, okay, of all the things I'm doing that I feel are good, which of those things are actually good? And if I have to stack rank them, which ones are better than other ones? And also, how do they interact? So I think marketers very much need attribution in that sense. Yeah, Doesn't no, absolutely. And you you deal with the, you know, having a, a background in product and marketing, you know, you deal with this issue of multi-touch in B2B too, right? Like yeah. which of yeah. these touch points were actually really valuable and, and how do you calculate that? And then you're dealing with also you know, companies where you have multiple, you know, contacts, like which ones yeah, of yeah. those, you know, that were acquired from what mechanisms actually helped, you know, move the deal along, so to speak. And how do yeah. you calculate that? That's you know, a there's, there's a lot of tough of problems the, there. Of, for our customers that like we are, we're targeting solely B2B companies and primarily SaaS companies and sometimes some other things as a service, but those are sort of our target customers. 
And they all have what you just described, like they're selling like the multiple stakeholders in an account, like the deal might take uh, 60 days just in the sales pipeline. But before that, it might be like several attempts to sell. You can have years of history before that. And like, how do you make sense of all that? And how do you even get it somewhere where you can start to make sense of it? It's super tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> we're not, we, we got plenty of work. <laughs> uh, so what's the ideal customer from Dream Data? Like, what do they look like? What problems are they trying to solve? How do you help them? I think like, of course, like the customers we love the most are of course customers who are looking to solve this problem, who are, I would say, ideally, like they already have a healthy collaboration in the go-to-market team between sales, marketing, maybe product. So it's less of like, a, hey, I need to prove that I'm doing well. It's more of like everybody agrees that we're a data-driven company, but to get this data somewhere where we can action it, it's just going to take us so long. We won't be able to build our own product. We're going to have to pull our best engineers out to do this. So, hey, we're going to buy this product instead. And then we can start making those decisions based on data. I think that's like a very, very good customer for us. It's someone who is very data-driven, but also understands that building a solution for this problem is going to take too much time and take like they would have to sacrifice a lot of time and the, with the best engineers to solve it. That, and then of course, it's someone who is spending a lot of money in the go-to-market. So we, like if you are like people who are growing aggressively, that fits very well because then the investment you're doing into go-to-market is so big, you need to sort of figure out in small changes or optimizations can help a lot. Also, like companies that are searching for their channels, like or they know their channels, they know how to generate revenue, but they're forced to continuously like increase their growth because they, you know, they're building up the revenue base, they need to grow, grow, grow. So they are constantly searching for new channels or new tactics that can continue their growth. And how are they going to work out? Like whenever they test something, how are they going to know if it works if they don't have this type of product? That's a very good customer. And then I'd say we do sort of, because the the data foundation itself is very exciting. If the company also wants to use that data for other things, that's exciting for us. Like if you want to use a reverse ETL tool to put some of this data back into your CRM system or put it into an email automation platform or like that's also very exciting. You know, it's very quiz, like both because the product, our product becomes more valuable to the customer. And of course, like it also becomes more like for us, as it becomes more valuable, our customers will stay along, uh, stay with us longer. Absolutely. So talk to me about uh, the biggest challenges now. Like what's your big challenge on Dream Data side? You know, beyond the, hey, we need to close and sell more customers. But what's the biggest challenge that you need to deliver from a product standpoint or problem you need to solve for customers? Yeah, I think it's a bit, I think because we're sitting in this attribution space, that's an interesting place to be, but we feel that the product we have underneath it is very powerful. So it's like, how do we make that step from say, say that we are solving B2B revenue attribution to say, maybe we are the foundation for a B2B revenue automation, or like, how do we make that transition? These I think we're making it customer by customer because as we sort of, we're selling to a customer, they like the attribution part of the product. We give them access to the data part of the product. We show them the value of that. But now we're sort of like, how do we transition maybe our go-to-market and should we? I think it's like, it's not a given that we should, but like that is a big challenge, I feel. 
beyond sort of fundraising and selling and, and all the other things that are part of running a business. But from oh, a product cool. perspective, I think that that's a big challenge for us. Well, as we're wrapping up here, I thought I'd ask you a couple of questions, Lars. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I've been asking you questions as we've gone, but let's, yeah, yeah. let's talk about you personally, as opposed to your, your professional background. What, what's your favorite product? So, yeah, I mentioned reverse ETL as something we like to work with companies that do that. So my favorite product at the moment is a product called High Touch, which is a reverse ETL tool. I love it. I mean, do you know the product? I do not. No, okay. But reverse ETL, like it's basically like you have your data warehouse with all your beautiful data models, like what we build. And then you use a reverse ETL tool to extract data from that and push it back to say Salesforce, HubSpot, or any other system where that data originated. And that's like super powerful. Like we use it for a bunch of automations on our own data for ourselves. And it's just, you built very, very useful solutions very, very fast. And it's just, you wouldn't want to build any. So iTouch is my favorite product at the moment. So what, what makes you like iTouch in particular? I think for me, it is the amount of business value that you get from a very, very little effort there. We use our own product. So we have all the, like all our customers and prospects are in our own product. And we have all the data around how they use the product, how they interact with the website, et cetera, et cetera. With high touch, for instance, I can take that data and I can give it back to my salespeople and say, hey, look, this account that you engaged with two weeks ago actually is now engaging with the product. Maybe you should contact them. And it's just something like if I wanted to do that without high touch, I couldn't. I'd have to pull out like people to build complicated stuff. With high touch, I can do a bit of SQL, click a few buttons, and then it's running. Yeah, so it's cool. like the, the amount of business value I get from a very little effort. Well, kudos to high touch. So one final question <laughs> for you, Lars, three words to describe yourself. Yeah. So I think like uh, doubting is maybe a good word or inquisitive. I think as a CEO, like some CEOs are very like have a very high degree of conviction. I have a co-founder who actually two co-founders who have very high conviction. So as a CEO, I'm probably a bit more on the doubting side, or I'm the person who asks the questions and not always sure that we're going the right direction. I think data-driven or data-obsessed is maybe also a good way of describing myself because I do feel that that I am and we are as a company, like insanely committed to data. And then honesty, I think I, I try to be honest. I try to um, say things the way I see them, even if it's not always favorable to myself. Like I try to put things the way I see them, even if it might mean that other people are not, they completely think that that, that would be the most clever thing to say in that context. Awesome. Well, thanks, yeah. Lars. This has been a good time. Yeah, thanks, Eric. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs>